good to see you this morning. If you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2 is where we're going to be. And uh, excited to be to be here. My name is Kyle. If you're visiting with us, I serve as the lead pastor here. I want to say welcome to you. We're glad that you're here uh, worshiping with us today. And uh, we pray that you would uh, find this time here fruitful as we enter into God's Word. Uh, today we're starting... Uh, a mini-series, if you will. And uh, so the mini-series is titled The Church and the Home with the subtitle Proclaiming the Gospel to Future Generations. Now, this series is going to seek to uh, explore the partnership between the church as as an entity, like the, the, the people of God, the church, not specifically the the, the building of God or the place where we gather, but the people of God, the church, the partnership between the church and the home, specifically those uh, homes that are represented here as the church. So it's the individuals and the way that we serve one another in the proclamation of the gospel to coming generations. And you might say in a southern way that we stepped off into it last week, right? We got into this a bit last week, and uh, now we're going to jump headfirst into it. In the next couple of weeks, I want to provide some depth to the vision that was laid out last week, specifically that we be a place, we be a church, a people of God who are proclaiming the gospel to future generations so that they might put their hope in God. That is our our goal. So today we're in Judges, and in Judges what we see specifically in the way that I've, I've laid it out here for you, and if you're taking notes you can write this down. Uh, I'll read it slowly. Uh, Idolatry in the next generation, idolatry in the next generation is born from disobedience in the current generation. So I'll read it again. I think this is what Judges is showing us. Idolatry in the next generation is born from disobedience in the current generation. Let me pray for us and then we'll get rolling today. Heavenly Father, it is a joy now together in your presence where we have your word, we have your presence with us, and we have one another now as we study your word. Uh, Lord, would you enlighten our hearts and minds? Would you illuminate the passage today that we might see it for all that it is? But help us, Lord, not to, to see just what's on the surface, but to see Christ in it. Lord, to see how Christ is the answer to all all of our sins, all of our struggles, all of our pains, Lord, that in Him we have grace upon grace, we have mercy upon mercy. Lord, would you turn our hearts toward Him today as we read um, here in Judges 2 about your people, Israel, and what they faced. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the first thing I want to talk to you about as we get into Judges is this, is God's command. God had issued a command during the Exodus. So you guys recall the Exodus, right? Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt. It's through many signs and wonders, many great things take place. And the whole part of this was to finally lead them into the land that had been promised to Abraham, which was where God's people originate, right? You get Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel. So we have the people of Israel, the Israelites uh, are being led on this wilderness journey into the promised land that God had promised to their father, Abraham. All right, so that's, that's kind of where they're at. Uh, and as they get closer, Moses, is, uh, Moses dies. He's not allowed to lead the people in. It's Joshua who is to do this. But there was a command that was issued to Moses that we read about in Deuteronomy that gives specific instructions on what to do when you come into the land. This is how the people of God, Israel, this is how they were to approach the enemies of God. This is how they were to deal with the enemies of God in this place at the conclusion of the Exodus. You have this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. So if you want to flip over there, you can. You can hold your place in Judges 2. That's where we'll spend most of our time, but this has given us context. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, that is the promised land, and clears away many nations before you. Here we have all the ites. You have the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. So God's saying these 
through Moses. These nations are bigger than you are. They're stronger than you are. uh, But I'm going to send you into that land and you are going to take it over. And this is what he says. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Everybody say complete destruction. All right, a few of you are believers in this. Everybody say complete destruction, right? All right, there we go. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Everybody say no covenant. No mercy. All right. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly but thus shall you deal with them you shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire complete destruction not only of them but also of their idols of their gods and then in verse 16 jumping a few verses down there in Deuteronomy 7 he says he goes on to say this and you shall consume all the people's that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. So what we see in Deuteronomy 7 is that God had promised a land, but in that land were the enemies of God, people who had set their face against God. They had committed themselves to worshiping other gods. They were not at all interested in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were interested in their own God, and God is serious about worship. He's serious about not having other gods before him. These people were enemies with God. And so God is also then must be, he has to be serious about the continued faithfulness of his own people, serious about their purity, that they abstain from idol worship, that they abstain from serving other gods, worshiping other gods. They're not even meant to tolerate pagans or tolerate pagan worship, they're meant to destroy them. This was God's judgment upon an evil people. This was God judging these people and giving them over to his own people, the Israelites. Now, why is God so serious about worship? Why is God so serious about which God we serve? Well, because he's the one true God. And so as the one true God, he is a jealous God. He longs for the heart of his people to be turned toward him and not toward other objects because those other objects, those other gods, would only lead to their unfaithfulness. It would lead to their impurity. It would lead to their lack of holiness. It would lead ultimately to their destruction. And so these are his people. These are the people that he brought out of Egypt. These are the people that he made a covenant with Abraham concerning. He doesn't want them serving other gods. He doesn't want them destroying future generations, that their sons may be turned against him and turned toward other gods. We see the passion of God for his people in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 11, some of those verses that I skipped. This is why he's saying, here's what you're going to do This is where his heart is for his people. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. You were the smallest. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, there he has a mind to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, and he's redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He's the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And he repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statues and the rules that I command you today, which was part of what I said a moment ago about driving them out, not committing them to utter destruction. 
But even before that, in Deuteronomy, we have the Ten Commandments and the way that we're to raise future generations, things we'll get into next week. You see, God loves his people with a ferocious love, a love that says, you are mine and I am to be solely yours. He's covenanted with them to be their God, and he has been faithful to his covenant even when they have not, even when they've grumbled in the wilderness, even when they've grumbled against him and thought that he wasn't good enough and said, hey, we'll just go back to Egypt. At least there we had steak, we had meat, but God has remained faithful and he's provided and he's brought them here to the, to the entrance to the promised land. He has been and he will be steadfast toward them in love and faithfulness. And Israel must hear. That's the last line of what I read a moment ago, that Israel must hear and obey. It says, keep these commandments which I have given you, lest they fall like their enemies. You see, God commanded Israel to make no covenant with pagan nations. He told him to tear down their altars, to destroy their idols by fire. He commanded them to pay attention to his commands and to remain faithful to him lest they go the way of their enemies. But that's not what happens in Judges chapter 1. In Judges chapter 1, we have the details of Israel's failure when it came to pushing out the Canaanites and taking the land of promise. Rather than driving out the Canaanites from the land, rather than devote them and their gods to total destruction, Israel allows the Canaanites to dwell among them, seeking to make them slaves. And the effects of this were tragic. The Israelites turned to their gods, the Baals, and turned away from the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And not only were they disobedient, but they were also idolatrous. It wasn't mere disobedience. It was that they, their heart, in their heart, they turned away from God and turned toward these false gods. And so in Judges chapter 2, what you have is a, the angel of the Lord rebukes Israel, and he pronounces a curse upon him. Look at Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides. And their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and they wept. And they called the name of the place Bochum. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. The name Bochum just means weeping or weepers. What's the judgment from the angel of the Lord? You have not obeyed my voice. You have not obeyed my command. Why have you done this? What have you done? The judgment continues. I'm not going to drive them out. They'll become thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. Now, do you remember the promise in Deuteronomy 7? That if you failed to do this, their gods would become a snare to you. The angel of the Lord is repeating what was declared to the Israelites. It's a scathing, specific rebuke. Israel's guilty of disobeying God's commands for their entrance into the promised land. That's tempting to see verse 5 there as the details of their repentance, but we're not told that they repent, we're just told that they wept. True repentance would have been more than weeping. It would have been seen in the actions of those men and women. They, they likely would have gone to the Canaanites, driven them out of the land, dashed into pieces their altars and their gods, burned them up with fire. Instead, they wept at the news and they made 
some sacrifices. And the coming verses show us that there was no lasting effect to this weeping or sacrifice. Their attempts to pacify God were short-lived. And as alarming and as devastating as an event as this is, it really does get worse. In verses 6 through 9, we, we have recalled for us the faithfulness of Israel during the days of Joshua's leadership up until his death. And it was after his death that the Israelites failed to drive out the rest of the Canaanites. There were faithful men among them, to be sure, but there were many who failed to obey God. And Judges 2.10 shows us the result of this disobedience, what it gave birth to. And look at verse 10 in chapter 2. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. There arose a generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. You see, what was once a positive image of Israel in the final chapter of Joshua, in the beginning of Judges, is now distorted by this image of the next generation who had forgotten God and the work that he had done. It's one of the reasons that I think one of the main thoughts in this passage is this, that idolatry in the next generation is born from disobedience in the current generation. You see, Israel disobeyed God concerning the Canaanites, but they also disobeyed God in failing to teach the next generations to know God and to know his work on their behalf. It's precisely the same thing that Asaph was warning later Israelites about in Psalm 78, which we looked at last week, urging them to proclaim to the next generations the wonderful works of God, the excellencies of his name and his work among them, to not forget it, lest they be like their fathers who have disobeyed the Lord. Now, for whatever reason... Their fathers failed. For whatever reason, their fathers were tolerant, accepting, even inviting of the Canaanites and their gods into their life, into their country, into their way of living. There are countless reasons why they might have chosen to disobey God, and we could speculate endlessly about what those might be. What we see in Israel's history is that they were a bit prone to laziness at times. Maybe they were tired from their journey. They didn't want to go through another battle. Maybe they were afraid of the sheer number against them, and they thought, there's no way God will deliver us now. Maybe they looked about the foreign women and men with lustful hearts. Maybe they were intrigued by the thought of other gods. Maybe they simply wanted slaves, thinking to themselves, what's better than a land flowing with milk and honey except a land that flows with milk and honey and servants to fetch it for you? You see, throughout history, God's people have been guilty of syncretization, which is the melding of right beliefs about God right knowledge about him and his work with evil desires of our own hearts and the false beliefs of others. The effects are bad enough on the current generation when syncretization happens, but the fruit of such rebellion is often vividly seen in coming generations, in the next generation. What I allow in part now in my own life my sons and my daughter will reap the reward of, right? What I think is but a small thing in my own life, my sons and daughter will battle fiercely in their own life. This can be observed with a wide or narrow lens. You can look with a wide lens at the history of Israel. You can see whole nations turn away as a result of the disobedience of their fathers, like we see here. Or you can see households 
experience this as a father and a mother disobey God and their children outright turn away from God, which is also seen here, right? The whole nation is made up of individual households. Individual households begin the compromise that affected the whole nation. And eventually you have a next generation who neither knows God or the work which he has done because the fathers preceding them forgot God, abandoned God, rebelled against God, allowed compromise in their lives. You see, it always begins with families who decide to meld their faith in God with the desires of their own hearts and eventually the false beliefs of pagans. It it really is a staggering phrase. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. May that not be said in my home. May that not be said in our church, this local expression. If only their fathers had obeyed God fully, driving the Canaanites out of the land, destroying their idols and altars, then the future generations likely could have been saved from total rebellion against God. Look at what it leads to in verse 11 here. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, which is Uh, the goddesses, so the gods and the goddesses. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he also sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. What a sad thing. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. You see, when the people of God set themselves against God, it results in terrible distress. Once hidden in the peace of God, once hidden behind the strength of God, once infused with power from on high to face anything, they now have that same hand set against them. Against them, and they're in terrible distress from it. Israel's idolatry led to outright apostasy. People fully turning away from God, beginning to serve false gods, bowing down to them, worshiping them. They now experience the anger of the Lord, which He promised to all who set themselves against Him in Deuteronomy 7. It's easy for us to look at them and to say, how could you do this? We talked about this some last week. Like, how could the Israelites in the wilderness turn away from God? Do they not remember the Red Sea being parted and swallowing up their enemies right after they had passed through on dry ground? I mean, that alone, I would think, right? We would hope would make us say, I'm going to be faithful to this God. I'm not going to question him. He can move a whole sea for his will. But it didn't matter. The same is true here. God has done so much on their behalf. And yet they turn away from him. And we say, we might read this and say, how in the world? But we must remember one of the central truths of this passage That idolatry in the next generation is born from disobedience in the current generation. They didn't immediately slip into that. It was through progressive disobedience to God that led the next generation into this unfaithfulness. This generation turns away from God because their fathers compromised their faith 
and disobeyed God themselves. Church family, we must, you, you must allow the sad state of Israel to humble you, not anger you. To humble you, not to look with disbelief and accusational finger wagging. <laughs> How dare you? Rather than looking at their fathers or them and asking, how dare you? We must look with humility and ask, am I guilty of this in my home? Am I guilty of this with the people that are around me? In what ways am I prone to forget the Lord? In what ways am I prone to wander into my own desires, not seeking God, both in the home and in the church, among God's people? In what ways have I forsaken the next generation by being so consumed with myself, my own thoughts, my own desires? It really is a sad state as we look upon Israel. But we're not without hope. The wonderful mercy of the Lord is displayed here as well amid outright disobedience, outright rebellion against God, rejection of him even. Look at verses 16 through 19. Then the Lord... So... The end of verse 15, and they were in terrible distress. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked and had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Wow. It's a wonderful image of God's mercy, his grace, his intervention on display simultaneously with outright rejection of God. And if it weren't for such mercy, if it weren't for such grace, there would be no hope for any one of you or any one of me. <laughs> There's just one of me. I think. But the, here the Lord provides judges, saviors, if you will. Israel's apostasy is spiritual adultery. They're accused here of whoring after other gods. They continue to abandon the love of God in exchange for the worshiping of false gods, selling themselves to do so. And this is the cycle that's seen throughout the book of Judges. There's sin, and then there's the plundering, and then there's cries for mercy and God's intervention through a judge. And each time the Lord graciously, mercifully intervenes by raising up a new judge in response to their cries for mercy. Mercy keeps coming despite their failure. Praise God. You, you cannot out God's mercy. And even the judges that God raised up weren't perfect. Some of you know the name Samson. You know the struggles that he dealt with. In fact, the judges seem to get worse as the book goes on. They were subject to some of the same nonsense that the rest of the Israelites were subject to. And eventually, Israel begins to clamor for a king. And one of the sad states in which the book ends is that there was no king in Israel. 
You see, rather than hiding themselves under the kingship of God, rather than hiding themselves under the refuge of God, they keep demanding for intervention through a new leader. If we just had a better leader, if we just had a new judge, if we had a king, God, the judges aren't working out, we need a king now. You see, you're not, you, ought to, you ought not only be humbled by Israel's disobedience, questioning, am I too this way? We should also be humbled by God's continued mercy toward them. Paul writes that it's the mercy of God that leads us to repentance, or the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Kindness is not seen without great rebellion against God and then mercy experienced. It's the kindness of God. That is what leads someone to repentance. We must, as Christians, maintain a heart of repentance, understanding that I, even now, as someone who is saved, wrestle with my flesh, sin against the Lord. I'm prone to follow my own desires. And yet it's the mercy of God that meets me in those moments, that draws me back to him, leads me to repent. His mercy, God's mercy extends to his people even when their failures are self-inflicted. Friend, maybe you sit here today with a laundry list of self-inflicted failures. I want to urge you today to throw yourself upon the mercy and grace of God this morning. To find forgiveness for your sins. To find true salvation, real life in Christ. And that's what we have. In the face of Jesus Christ, we have the ultimate judge. We have the ultimate savior. We have the one who became the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And he represents grace in its ultimate form. The apostle John in writing about Jesus says that he was the image of the invisible God and that in him we have received grace Upon grace. What is grace upon grace if it is not unending grace for those who hide themselves in the Lord? Christ interrupts the ongoing cycle of sin in the lives of his people throughout time and throughout the world. There is no sin, there is no failure, there is no act of unfaithfulness that is beyond the reach of Christ's redeeming love. Amen? Having received from God such undeserved assurances of forgiveness and reconciliation, we are now called to respond with wholehearted obedience to him, to extend his grace to others. Paul, in Ephesians and in Colossians, writes very specifically about putting off the old man, taking on the new man, laying aside sexual immorality and idolatry and covetousness and gossip and slander and acts of hate, anger. Just put these things away from you and live by the Spirit of God which is alive in you. In Galatians, he talks about the fruit of the flesh, which is all of those things I just mentioned and more. He says, and things like these, so that no one can say, well, I've got this one. It's not on the list. And then he says, live this way by the Spirit of God, which produces a fruit in you. Just love and joy and peace and patience, self-control and goodness and kindness he says, against such things there is no law. In 2 Corinthians 5, we see what Israel was supposed to be. We see that the church of Christ is now called to be. Israel was always supposed to do this. From the beginning of Adam, they were supposed to do this, to proclaim the excellencies of the glory of God in all the world, to reproduce, to cultivate to make known 
the glory of God. Wherever they were, Israel was called to do the same thing, to make known the glories of God wherever they were. This is why it was so important for them to not mix with other gods, to call people to repentance, to proclaim the excellencies of God. God was not in the business of not allowing the others to join. That happens time and again throughout the Old Testament, and it especially happens in the New Testament as we see the gospel proclaimed to the Gentiles. It wasn't for the Jews only. And so it's not this exclusive thing that that some people aren't allowed into. It's that if you are going to be in, it's by faith in the one true God. You don't get to mix that with other things. And so as families, as churches, we proclaim faith in the one true God and we abhor in our own lives anything that that seeks to dethrone Christ. Amen? We put it away from us. It's foolishness. It's falsehoods. And we're to not stand for it. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, what we learn is that all of this is from God. All of this salvation, all of this redemption, all of this new life in Christ is from God. Paul writes, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So you have been reconciled and you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, he says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. He says, We implore you, Corinthians, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In verse 21, we read, How? How can a sinner be reconciled to God? How can we be reconciled to God? 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes your sin to the cross, and he gives you his righteousness. Jesus bears the wrath of God in your space, on your behalf, so that you might have the righteousness of God as new clothing. So that one day, when you stand before God, you are not naked and ashamed as Adam and Eve were. Naked, ashamed of your sin. But you will stand fully clothed in the righteousness of Christ Jesus, which saves to the uttermost. In fact, it's the only way that you will be saved. This passage is meant to leave us in just a a bit of a troubled state, right? It's troubling to see the repeated offenses of Israel even in the face of grace and mercy. I titled this sermon, The Tragedy of Idolatry. But again, I said a moment ago, we're not without hope. There is hope. We have hope now in the face of Christ. These judges were but a foreshadowing of Christ. And so let me encourage you with this, and the next week we'll get into the details a little bit more so of how we can do this in our lives. But let me encourage you with this. If you want to change the world, you want to change a culture, start by loving the next generation enough to pour the gospel of Jesus Christ into their lives through both your words and your actions. Husbands, love your spouses and your children enough to lead them spiritually. Wives, love your husbands and your children enough to show them the gospel by word and deed. Maybe you're unmarried. Maybe you don't have any children yet. You are married with no children. 
Maybe you're kind of in the older generation. Your children are grown. Now you've got grandkids maybe. The call is the same for all of us, no matter where we're at. It's to serve the Lord, to commit ourselves to Him, and to proclaim the gospel to the next generation by living out what we believe, by proclaiming what we believe. You see, it's up to the church and it's up to the home to establish Christ as the cornerstone in every generation. Rest assured, Christ is the cornerstone in every generation, but not every generation places him in his rightful place. It's up to the church and the home to proclaim those things so that having heard, they may also believe and do the same. Faithfulness breeds faithfulness. Unfaithfulness breeds unfaithfulness. Large portions of America recently were revealed to be post-Christian by a Barna Group study. Post-Christian. That result, no doubt, comes from the unfaithfulness of past generations. There's a ton of things we could lament over this and speculate as to why this has happened. I don't think that would necessarily be fruitful with our time. We can be sure, though, that, that having prayer in school, before school, or whatever used to be the practice, or posting the Ten Commandments on the lawns of courthouses and bulletin boards at the schools, will, those things will not be what sparks a revival. Those were merely sacrifices without obedience, which is what the Pharisees are accused of. It's like whitewashing a tomb. What, what will do it will be courageous men and women who resolve to remain faithful to God amid the postmodern, post-Christian wave. Faithful to the lamb and not to the elephant or the donkey faithful to Christ above all, even if it hurts us, even if it challenges us. Men and women who are grateful for the opportunity to live faithful lives amid so much unfaithfulness. I have seen more in the last few years, more people my age and younger with small children say, I wish I didn't have to raise my children in this world. But you know where I started hearing that? Their parents. I wish my children didn't have to be raised in this world. I wish my grandkids didn't have to live in this world. I'm afraid of what this world will be like. That is not, that is not the talk of people who are faithful to God. That is the talk of people who are fearful in the face of the enemy. People who are faithful to God look at our current situation and say, what an opportunity lies before us. You, you see, great revivals, great times of renewal, reformations happen in the face of idolatry, in the face of apostasy. When brave men and women stand up for what God has declared and they proclaim it as truth and they fortify themselves on it, they believe in it enough to be a bit crazy and settle themselves on God alone. Our history as Christians is one of martyrdom. Our history as Christians is one of ongoing persecution. Our history as Christians is no cakewalk. And Christ has said that it wouldn't be. But Lord, help us if we start self-inflicting by turning away from God and turning towards the idols of our day. No matter how moral they may appear. Let us settle ourselves on the word of God. 
Let us proclaim that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But don't stop there. Don't leave someone in condemnation. Go on to proclaim the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God for all who will turn away from their sins and turn to faith in Christ Jesus. You see, it will be men and women who have been transformed by God's grace, who are living by the Spirit of God, who will also see one day the power of God displayed in the salvation of the lost. Mothers and fathers, we're looking for this in our children. Amen? Settle yourself on the Lord. Stand firm in Christ. Teachers, church family members, wherever you're at in your life, settle yourselves on the one hope that is Christ Jesus. Nothing else is strong enough to save. Nothing else will last, but Christ and his people will last forever. Settle yourself on him. Live in this world as though you are a sojourner. Live in this world as though you are on your way to a better homeland. Amen? Why waste your energy with the silly debates of our day? Why waste your energy with the the foolishness of our day? Live for the Lord. Do not be anxious. Rejoice always, Paul writes in Philippians 4. Amen? And to be clear, I want it to be very clear because there is this, well, it's syncretism. There's this thought out there in some sense, which is really weird to me, that America is almost like, you know, Israel. And there's preachers everywhere who want to draw these parallels between Old Testament Israel and America. And when Christ died and the gospel began to be proclaimed to Gentiles, it's very clear that there was not a nation in view anymore. There's not a nation state in view anymore. It's a people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation who will stand before the throne of the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth and worship him. Amen. That is the bride of Christ. Israel is but a small picture, a foreshadowing, if you will, of what the bride of Christ is to become. But their history is recorded for the church's instruction. We should be humbled because of it rather than appalled at it. It should lead us into right living rather than scoffing. Brothers and sisters, I urge you then to turn yourself toward the grace of God today by faith in Jesus Christ, to live an obedient life to God. Proclaim the gospel to the next generation now by what you believe, by what you do, by what you say. Let the next generation not be marked by idolatry, because we were marked by disobedience. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you. Father, we praise you for your word. God, we thank you for the history that we have to look at, the things that we can look back on and see. Their history is our history. And Father, would you help it to humble us today? I pray that this word we see in Judges 2 would cause us to evaluate our own hearts, our own lives. What is it that we pour our energies into? What is it that we pour ourselves into? Are we proclaiming faithfully the excellencies, the glories of God? Or have we been taken in by the, the silly debates and the dissensions of our day? Father, help us to be faithful. I pray, Lord, for the men and women, the boys and girls here. Help them, Lord, to be faithful to you and to your covenant, to be obedient to you. 
God, would you forgive us of our sins? Forgive us of our failures. Would you help us to hide ourselves, to throw ourselves even on the mercy seat of Christ today? God, we ask that you would give us strength for the coming days. That as we seek to walk faithful, Lord, we know that we will encounter attack spiritually for sure. Maybe physically, maybe something else, who knows? But Lord, help us to be strengthened by your spirit. Help us to be bold in our proclamation of you. Help us to not waver, to not be as the ones described in Ephesians 4 who are just simply tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine or cunning voice. Help us to stand firm as members of the body of Christ. Help us to encourage one another in that, to speak the truth and love to each other. Lord, help us to catch a vision of the next generation. Uh, forgive me, Lord, in this. Forgive me in, in being short-sighted. Short-sighted in the way that I think about the next generation, the way that I've led others, Lord, over the last seven years to think about the next generation or to not think about them. Lord, I praise you for your conviction. I praise you for your correction, for your rebuke. I thank you for humbling me. Lord, may it not be said of us, may it not be said of us that the next generation didn't know you or the work that you had done. Help us to be obedient to you, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.